The Brief is supported by Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app. Government takes over Birmingham City Council amid threats of further local authority bankruptcies. HS2's Manchester leg and Euston Terminal both facing the axe. Outrage after benches and ping pong tables removed in Southwark to curb antisocial behaviour. And experts warn banning XL bully dogs could fail to prevent more fatal attacks. My name is Fran Williams. I am an architectural journalist, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's big stories in architecture, planning, and housing news. Welcome to the brief from Open City. My guest this week is Barbara Speed. Barbara is Deputy Opinion Editor at The Guardian. Welcome to the show, Barbara. Thanks, it's great to be here. Housing Secretary Michael Gove is set to appoint commissioners to take over the running of Birmingham City Council after the local authority effectively declared itself bankrupt earlier this month. This story has been widely covered by the national media since the local authority declared a Section 114 notice on the 5th of September earlier this month, a move that means it is effectively bankrupt and has halted all but essential spending. The financial turmoil follows a £1 billion payout resulting from an equal pay ruling, which found that female staff missed out on bonuses paid to men and is now facing a further at least £650 million in claims. Council officials say the authority faced an £87.4 million shortfall for the period of 2023-24, to a figure which is projected to rise to £164.8 million in 2024-25. to Gover's announced that he will be appointing commissioners to take over the day-to-day running of the largest local authority in Europe later this week. The drastic emergency measures could lead to job cuts, tax rises and Birmingham City Council assets being sold off to generate funds. And Birmingham is just one of many councils in increasingly dire financial straits, according to an article published in The Economist last week. Between 2001 and 2018, not a single council issued a Section 114 notice. However, since then, nine have been issued, with four in the past year alone. A further 26 councils in some of England's most deprived areas warn that they may be following suit within the next two years. The pressure on finances had steadily grown since 2010, when government ministers slashed local authority grants by more than half in real terms. In response, councils across the country introduced cuts, reducing core spending by more than a quarter and hiked taxes, all to plug the hole. However, in the same period, the population increased by 6% and recent inflation has further compounded the financial crisis. This news follows the what used to be rare bankruptcies of Slough, Thurrock, most recently Woking and more notably Croydon, just in the past two years. Barbara, why is it such big news that Birmingham, which is the largest council in the country, has now issued a Section 114 notice? So I think the size is a big part of it. Obviously, it's, as you say, it's the largest in the UK. I think it's one of the largest in the whole of Europe. And so where you've had these councils declaring bankruptcy before, I think there's a sense of growing momentum that this is going wrong for more and more councils. And now you have this huge big, chunky council declaring a similar problem. I mean, only a year ago, Birmingham was um, hosting the Commonwealth Games. It was this kind of picture of this successful British city and now suddenly they've run out of cash. And so I think the the reason it's got so much traction is is that you're starting to think okay does this model work at all it's not just maybe it's not just councils a select few councils mismanaging their money maybe there is a bigger problem here and i think that's why this has become kind of perhaps a bigger story than some of those previous um section 114 notices 
And we're hearing now that the council's spending is now limited to only essential spending. Um, what do you think living under a bankrupt council would look like for people living in Birmingham? So the government's done quite a lot to kind of say councils don't go bankrupt. This isn't that they've got no money. And I think that is worth reiterating. It's not like if you're living in Birmingham, no one will collect your bins. There'll be no services. So Birmingham will have to keep doing what's called statutory services. So things that they're legally compelled to do and also anything that means kind of looking after vulnerable people. I mean, that's a slightly vague definition. But what it will definitely or almost certainly mean is a rise in council tax because that's one of the few levers that a council has to kind of increase its income. Um, and also, Gove has said this is very likely, it's what's happened in a lot of other places, is the selling off of assets. So, I mean, it's hard to know at this point what's on the table in Birmingham, but it could be the library building, it could be the museum, um, it could be council housing. It's very hard to know until the commissioners have gone in. But I mean, Slough, which had a similar situation a few years ago, to take an example, staff were cut from the council like multiple care services were actually shut, which seems quite shocking if you think they're meant to continue doing anything that's looking after vulnerable people. But I think it shows that that definition is perhaps not what you might want that to be because we don't think of care services as being kind of optional. So, yeah, and local transport, I think, was cut down as well, which I think, again, if you're a Birmingham resident, that's not what you want, especially given things like buses are already so slimmed down. So obviously Birmingham is kind of the second largest city in the UK. I mean, who do you think in Birmingham is going to be really feeling the effects of these issues? So unsurprisingly, it will be the people who are already on low incomes, people who maybe rely on some of those services that are going to be skimmed back. I mean, if you're driving your car around Birmingham, that won't have nearly as much of an impact as you on you as if you're someone that rides the bus every day and suddenly your bus line is gone. And also, if we think about council tax, that's already a very regressive tax. It's not been looked at for a really long time. You're paying a much lower proportion of your wealth on council tax if you're in an upper income band than you are if you're in a lower one. And I think it would I mean, I would assume they're going to increase it for everybody. So if you're somebody that's already struggling to pay your heating bill and stuff, your council tax is going to go up and that's going to be like potentially catastrophic for you. Yeah, it could be really detrimental for a lot of people. And um, Birmingham's problems kind of root from this settlement of these equal pay claims following a 2012 Supreme Court ruling. However, the Economist article points out that it it's not the only council at fault for this. But lawyers call it an outlier for, quote, burying its head in the sand. Why are we still in a situation where women are not receiving equal pay, especially considering this is a public body? It's a really interesting situation. It's actually not being covered that deeply. But the GMB union have said that there are loads of other councils in a similar position. And actually, although it definitely is a gender-based outcome, a lot of this has come from what's kind of they're referring to as sort of majority female, majority male jobs. So the idea that people who uh, collect bins and do kind of refuse management are often men for whatever reason. And so there are situations where, for example, they were allowed to clock off for the day once they'd finished their round, whereas women who might have been working as like a dinner lady or in cleaning would work to their set hours. And also some of those supposedly male-dominated jobs were also eligible for bonuses that lots of women weren't. So while the outcome is gender-based, you can see that it's quite a complex situation to try and resolve. And I think not to give the councils too much credit, but because they do have this situation, it's very, very hard for them to increase their own income they only have the government grant, which they can't control. They can sell off in some situations some of their assets and then they have council tax. So if you were looking at your own council and thinking we have this big problem too, you are quite 
it's going to be quite hard for you to resolve that, which I think is why it's coming to these tribunals and court cases. It does look like Birmingham have really messed it up in that they seem to have kind of brought back a kind of similar pay scale, which is bringing back a lot of the problem. It's, it's all quite complicated. But um, so again, not to let anyone off the hook, but you can see how they're on this and actually lots of other issues, councils' hands are quite tied because they just don't have the flexibility to actually run their organisation in a sensible way. Um, so I do think it's a bit of a window on that as well as one on to kind of gender inequality in general. Yeah, and um, looking beyond Birmingham City Council and the specific reasons for its problems, how worried should we be about the number of other councils that could potentially follow suit and start filing for bankruptcy in the next few years, do you think? It seems like very worried. I think there's at least 25 councils that are warning they're in a similar position out of around 300, I think. So that is quite a high number. And the thing about this is because they're all similar organisations, the pressures that are affecting one might well be affecting others. Equal pay thing, as I say, could affect other councils, but not all of them. But one thing that all of them are saying is that the rising cost of care is a major thing. So children's care services, there's been a change in the way they're regarded. So they have to be put on a parity with adult care, which is costing them loads and loads of money. And the government grant hasn't really increased to reflect that. So in real terms, what councils get from government has fallen by about 30% in the past sort of five to 10 years. So they're kind of being starved, essentially, like compared to other G7 countries, the income they're getting from government is very, very small. And also the income they get from council tax is very, very small. And I know we were just saying a rising council tax is going to hurt the poorest in society. But I think what's interesting to look at is the proportion of all of the taxes that we pay that go to a local authority, which in the UK is really small. So we pay a lot of our tax to government, not very much of our tax to a local authority. So what I think it's beginning to show, as I said, this this question of is the model actually working is like, do you need just a rebalancing of how the money kind of works? Because I actually think a lot of people would be quite keen for their taxes to be spent at a local level because, you know, we do elect our local councillors probably, possibly, those councils might know better how to spend the money on a local level. So I think, although obviously it's not a good situation for loads of councils to be warning of this problem, it would be interesting if whatever the next administration is decides, okay, we actually need to look at this and figure it out because it's not working um, amid inflation and the way that care works and the right, because the cost of care, especially for older people, is only going to be going up. So um, it could be interesting if it becomes a bit of a turning point in how all of that works. Definitely. And as you said, a lot of these kind of services are the things that directly impact people. So they kind of, they want to see what their money is going to. Um, and it's expected that the government commissioners will examine the council's books and make recommendations to go as to which assets should be sold off. And as you mentioned before, um, the council owns the Central Library, Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery and 54,000 council homes. Are we likely to see these turned over to private hands, do you think? And what do you think this means for the people of Birmingham? It seems pretty likely given, as it says, one of the only ways they can actually raise any money. And Gove has said that this is quite a likely outcome. It's happening in Croydon, it's happening in other councils as well. Um, the one sort of helpful thing, I guess, is I think it's quite common for, a, for example, a library or museum to be sold into private hands, but then the council actually leases back the property. So rather than the museum being turned into like a horrible office block, it could well be that it continues to be run by the council. Obviously, the council is then paying for the use of the building. So it's not, but they at least get that chunk of money back. Uh, from a private company. So that I think that's how Glasgow did it. They sold off some of their galleries when they had a problem. And I think it was also an equal pay problem a few years ago. Um, so 
it's sort of hard to say whether this will mean, you know, these institutions shutting, hopefully not, or maybe just a slightly different financial arrangement. But obviously, you know, the more these things are sold off, then the council has fewer assets and they're kind of eroding their ability to sort out future problems. So it's kind of not ideal, but... um, it probably will likely be one of the ways that they try and sort this out. And what do you think the kind of architectural ramifications of this will be for Birmingham City? Obviously, like it's happened before and other councils like Croydon, they had to get rid of brick by brick, which was their kind of arm's length and a regeneration company. And Birmingham's been undergoing a lot of regeneration over the last couple of years. So architecturally, what do you think this will have an impact on? Well, definitely for the period in which they're kind of under this order, this idea of no non-essential spending or no non-statutory spending means that they cannot do anything like that. So say, for example, if the Commonwealth Games were something that were on the cards in the future, I know that's not architectural, but that wouldn't be happening. So they can't kind of spread their wings on anything. They can't invest in things. They can't partner on stuff. And I think that does mean that you don't have that kind of public body representation on those projects. I mean, obviously, I, I still think that private companies will see... Birmingham is a great place to invest, a great place to do things, but you just don't have that involvement of the council and of public money, which I think does shift because, as we, you know, regeneration can mean whatever you want it to mean, right? So it it's whether those projects become ones that aren't quite so tailored to what locals actually need and want. HS2's Manchester leg could be scrapped under cost-saving measures being considered by the government, a report has revealed. The Prime Minister is meanwhile reportedly also pushing for the HS2 terminus to finish six miles north of Euston at the existing Old Oak Common Station in a bid to save yet more money, according to reports in The Times. Documents seen by The Independent suggest that £34 billion could be saved by cutting the Birmingham to Manchester and East Midland legs of the railway under plans which have been codenamed Project Redwood. The government has already spent an estimated £2.3 billion on the high-speed rail link, which would not be recoverable if the scheme is scrapped. Chancellor Jeremy Hunt and Prime Minister Rishi Sunak are believed to have discussed cost-saving measures last week for HS2, which has already been scaled back from a planned Leeds terminus and is under further review with a pause on design work at Grimshaw's Euston Station. In 2022, the government announced it would be scrapping the 21-kilometre Goldbourne link and earlier this year it announced the Birmingham to Crewe section, known as Phase 2A, would be delayed by at least two years to cut costs. If the Manchester leg is axed, it could mean an end to Bennett Associates' proposed upgrade of Manchester Piccadilly Station. In July, we covered on this show how the government's own infrastructure watchdog, the Infrastructure and Projects Authority, said delivery of the first two phases of the mega-project was, quote, unachievable in its present setup. The report read, quote, there are major issues with project definition, schedule, budget, quality and or benefits of delivery, which at this stage do not appear to be manageable or resolvable. The project may need rescoping and or its overall viability reassessed. What's this story all about? And why is it such a big deal that HS2 is potentially radically downstaging at such a late stage in the game? I mean, it's a phenomenally expensive big projects, the biggest infrastructure project in Europe, supposedly at the moment. And so I think there is just a real symbolism to this idea that Britain's kind of made this huge plan and that it's gone pear-shaped. I think that it kind of fits with a lot of the ways that people are seeing how kind of policy is going at the moment, how big projects are going at the moment. And it is that kind of sunk cost question that billion, literally billions of pounds have already been spent Billions are will be spent before the end of the project, but you have these constant calls from people to say, let's quit while we're ahead. I mean, we're not really ahead, we're billions of pounds down, but um, should we be just 
calling it quits now that inflation and kind of cost of building and all of those things just mean that this is becoming more and more expensive. And I do think as a project, it had such a clear stated aim. It was going to be a very fast rail link between London and between certain cities in the north. And when you remove one by one each of those elements, it does become kind of quite comical <laughs> that you're like, you have not, you may not succeed in any of these aims, which is kind of quite stark. Infrastructure projects are often and unfairly thought of as quite boring and don't tend to get much coverage on the front pages. Why has HS2 proved to be such a contentious development, which has consistently made headlines over the past decade? I think it's at the nexus of a lot of different issues. So if you take levelling up, for example, which was the big Tory promise, for some people it's it's a symbol of how that promise has kind of failed to materialise. I think also parts of the project were signed off by Boris Johnson and I think especially within the kind of you know, built environment community, he's kind of seen as like the king of the white elephant. Like he loves these big, expensive projects. Loads of them have never happened. The bridge to Ireland. <laughs> Let's see if that ever comes past. But um, I think his involvement also kind of sparks people's interest because he's seen as this figure who kind of shoots and doesn't score, you know. So um, I think anything about the, the North-South divide and how that manifests, I think that really gets people going and the idea that this this thing was promised and then has failed. I mean, I should add, though, that lots of people kind of in the north don't actually think this is a solution to the north-south divide anyway. They say, you know, transport up north is a nightmare. You can't get between northern cities very easily, which actually for lots of people is more of an issue than this, this idea that you just want to get to London all the time. So it is a really complicated one, but I think it, it cuts to a lot of different debates that we're having in society at the moment. And this comes as pressure mounts from Conservative MPs to reel in spending in order to offer tax cuts ahead of the next general election. So it's kind of getting quite political. The documents which were photographed by journalists outside the Treasury have been met by furious backlash from Northern mayors, leaders and some Tory MPs. And Labour's rail architect, Andrea Donis, said scrapping phase two would be, quote, utter stupidity, while Labour still has yet to commit to building the high-speed rail links in full if they win the next general election. So how likely do you reckon that we will see this project scrapped all downscaled? And is it about sending a message to voters ahead of next year's general election or an actual real threat? It's quite hard to say. I mean, what's quite interesting is this downgrade was one that Jeremy Hunt kind of floated a while ago in a speech and then immediately rode back on. And so I do think there's this sense that they're always testing the water because I do think that that a kind of party in power this close to a general election they kind of just really want to know how stuff is going to play with voters and I mean we've seen overnight that Rishi Sunak is looking at pulling back his net zero spending commitments and that is all geared towards sending voters this message that the reason you're out of pocket is because of the climate or you know in this case these infrastructure projects and we can save you from that rather than potentially you know looking a bit more about the long-term impact of austerity or just inflation as a result of um, among other things the Ukraine war so I do think it's one lever they're looking at to be able to say we care about the money in your pocket we're not going to spend it on these big um, projects the only thing obviously is that big infrastructure projects like this are not paid for by taking the money out of voters pockets even out of their taxes they're kind of borrowed against in the long term so it is a bit of a kind of false picture that we'll suddenly all have lots more money if HS2 is scrapped but yeah I think the, the political side is definitely that sense of kind of signaling you know we're, we're responsible with money even though the economy is not in a great state. And meanwhile a local blog Ian Visits reported a few days ago that if the Manchester leg is scrapped HS2 might never even reach Euston as Old Oak Common can just about cope with the number of trains running between Birmingham and the capital. 
Um, what would be the impact of scrapping the Manchester leg and terminating HS2 at Old Oak Common? Would it still be able to deliver the levelling up it has promised to northern parts of the country? So it obviously does just like cut off at both ends, as I say, in a slightly comical way, if you think about what the stated aim of the project was. I mean, if you come into Old Oak Common, you're about an hour from central London at that point. So you kind of potentially lose most of the time savings you've got by getting a high-speed link in the first place, it would be, I think, really ridiculous. But I think also that question of the Birmingham to Manchester link, I actually think those northern links could have turned out to be the most useful of all because those intercity links up north are, there's too many people on them, they're not very fast. And so that, I think, would be a real shame that you've kind of kept this pretense of a link to London and then you've given up on any sense of connecting the north better with itself. And so I think, yeah, on both ends, it would just be really silly. Southwark Council has attracted a wave of online criticism for a series of interventions designed to tackle antisocial behaviour, which local residents claim is, quote, ridiculous. The South London Authority removed picnic benches and ping-pong tables from the corner of Camberwell Green in what it claimed to be a preventative measure against antisocial behaviour. A nearby low wall was also removed to prevent people from congregating. Explaining its actions, the council tweeted, quote, We have reluctantly removed the tables on the recommendation of the police in an attempt to tackle the rise in antisocial behaviour in the park in recent months. In response to this, one local tweeted, quote, I'm unsure how removing one of the free community assets in our green space is expected to reduce antisocial behaviour and would like to see the rationale, adding, quote, The tables were used every day by a lot of people and was a valued community space. This comes as local site Southwark News published an article claiming the area is overrun with drug dealers and giant rats. One local business owner who was interviewed in the piece said, quote, I feel very intimidated as there are loads of druggies on the green. It's not very family friendly. They don't clean it up a lot. The bins are overflowing. Meanwhile, another resident disagreed with this assessment, saying she believed the Camberwell Green area had cleaned up in recent years. She went on to say, quote, certainly it has been gentrified. On one hand, that's a good thing. And on the other hand, people have been pushed out. So are you familiar with the Campbellwell Green area? And um, if so, what's your experience been like there? I have to say, I don't think I've actually been to Campbellwell Green, but I used to live in Southwark. So for some of the more northern parks and stuff, um, I've been around a lot and they've all been great. And um, what do you make of Southwark Council's attempts to tackle antisocial behaviour in this way? Are removing benches and ping pong tables really effective in making the area safer, as the Met have suggested? And um, what about other alternative methods, such as improved lighting? They haven't explained why these tables... I mean, they've removed benches, picnic benches, ping pong tables, and it seems like probably they just don't want people sleeping on them. But a bit like with those homelessness spikes, it's kind of treating the problem as a homeless person sleeping here rather than the problem being homelessness. Like, it's such a kind of strange short-term approach. And you kind of have to think... Well, part of what makes these spaces great is a lot of people being in them that I know for myself, if I'm walking down a busy road, wherever it is, I feel a lot safer than somewhere where there's nobody around. And if you're discouraging people from using the space in the first place, which removing all of these objects is going to do, I think surely even if your only metric is, you know, does it feel scary? It's actually going to get worse. I mean, it reminds me a bit, we did a piece um, a while ago about Burgess Park um, by Jonathan Nunn, which was about these 
barbecue setups that were put in by the council, their permanent barbecue, so people could cook there. And they were massively popular, like loads of different people, loads of different groups, all using them. And then after the pandemic, they've never brought them back. The way he put it was he was like, they were basically embarrassed by how popular they got here. They were like, oh no, people have come to use these public facilities. Like, what do we do? And you just kind of think that's such a crazy way to approach your public spaces. Like, you should be liking the fact that there are lots of people there. Um, and I think, yeah, if you're really bothered about this supposed antisocial behaviour, I think there are other measures that would help, not least helping those people kind of in the first place. And do you think this could just be another way of cracking down on homelessness and other marginalised groups, which overlooks the social value and community importance of bringing people together in shared public spaces? Yeah, absolutely. As I say, you're left wondering what does the council think this space is for? People standing, I guess, around, nowhere to sit like no activities it's quite a small space as it is and so you've effectively removed like all the facilities that there are there clearly the council have taken these measures because people have obviously written letters complaining and um uh, what do you say to the people who do feel like these kind of spaces like Campbellwell green do feel really unsafe to them so i think that what i'd like to know is if the people who are complaining feel that this is a solution because i I just struggle to think that anybody thinks removing this ping pong table is going to massively help. And I also think it is sort of that question of what do you mean by intimidated? Like that can be quite a loaded word. And I did think in the Southern News article, it was a classic kind of some locals say, and you're like, this doesn't seem, have you done a survey? You know what? And this throughout it, it was people talking about rats and youths in one category and you're like rats is a completely different issue that sounds like a refuse issue or you know there's something to do with waste collection that's so it's kind of untangling some of that stuff a bit I think in terms of for example walking home at night like I've definitely experienced this where as I say especially in kind of places that are a bit empty and there's like only a couple of people and you can obviously feel stressed and on your guard and you obviously want to feel like your council might help with that but I think yeah there are things like lighting actually encouraging people to use the space so it's not so empty whether some places need to be shut off at night if that's the only kind of option um that could all be looked at but i just think yeah even someone who was kind of very worried about this situation i I just struggle to believe that they would think that removing these facilities was was the answer the government's decision to ban american xl bullies following a spate of dog attacks has been met with concerns by uk experts who warn it may be ineffective in the short term The Guardian reported that with limited police resources and foreseeable backlogs of owners seeking exemptions in the courts, the law, expected to come into effect by the end of the year, is likely to be extremely difficult to enforce. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak announced on Friday that the breed would be banned under the Dangerous Dogs Act following the fatal mauling of a West Midlands man by two dogs suspected to be XL bullies. The breed, which has yet to be officially defined, can weigh up to 60 kilograms and grow to be 53 centimetres in height and is linked to six of the 10 fatal dog attacks in the UK last year and three of the seven so far this year. Some animal charities, including the Dogs Trust and RSPCA, have criticised the ban, instead calling on the government to crack down on, quote, the root issue by dealing with the unscrupulous breeders who are putting profit before welfare and the irresponsible owners whose dogs are dangerously out of control. Breeds such as the Pitbull Terrier and the Argentinian Mastiff are already prohibited under the Dangerous Dogs Act. However, due to a 1997 amendment to the law, approximately 3,500 dogs are presently exempt from the ban. 
This exemption allows dogs that have demonstrated to be non-threatening to be kept, provided that they are neutered, microchipped and muzzled in public areas. Experts warn that there are limited resources available to process exemptions and it may take several hundred hours of court time to process XL bully cases. So, Barbara, what sort of impact do large breeds such as the XL bullies have on public safety? Are they a high priority issue impacting the fundamental inclusivity of our public spaces and worthy of a headline ban as we've just seen? So with the caveat that they're 1% of UK dogs, that's not actually that many. I actually do think that a ban is probably justified. It's quite interesting that this breed has really only been in the UK since like 2014, 2015. They were bred to have this specific look, this specific kind of feeling of strength. They are obviously part of breeds that have over the years been bred for fighting. So they, they are very strong. I'm not saying they're necessarily aggressive if you've got a good owner and they're properly trained, that's fine. But they are very big. And I do think that the stats on fatalities are quite hard to ignore that this tiny percentage of dogs is actually responsible for a large number of deaths. I think when people hear the word ban, they think like mass culling, they're going to burn all the dogs. That's the implication from the um, government is that that's not the case, that they would ban breeding and and you could probably keep your dog if you can prove that it's safe. And then over time, they would try and kind of remove this dog from UK society. And actually, I think probably that is fair because especially now that people know this about them I think on seeing them people are going to be frightened and it is a dog that if you lose control of it's quite hard for a human to control them they are very very strong they've been bred to be and so whether even if they're brilliantly trained I think they overall probably just are a bit too dangerous. And there has been a lot of online discourse around dogs more generally as a result of the XL bully being ban being proposed um, perhaps something that people have been itching to discuss because obviously um, lots of people love dogs. Um, would our cities and urban areas benefit from a wider rethink of the etiquette and dog and rules around dog ownership? And are strict measures such as bans the way forward, do you think? As I say, I think a ban is probably justified. I think the stats on deaths are, are very striking. However, there's every few years a dangerous dog story kind of takes over the headlines and it becomes, for want of a better word, like a bit of a moral panic, even if it's potentially justified. Because I think it it really gets at a lot of things like class division, for example. So if you look at the way this story has been covered by a lot of the tabloids, it's implied that these are kind of gang dogs or like drug dealer dogs or, you know, that there's it's connected to other problems in society they're really expensive they're like four thousand pounds so actually i think probably a lot of the owners are really well off and so if they're interested in class like there's a lot more going on there than they maybe imply um but i think also this this kind of this way that we start kind of turning on each other and not liking each other's decisions which i think is often a product of like economic instability i think is also coming into that area as well i mean the the guardian ran a piece a few months ago about whether dogs should be allowed in restaurants and pubs and that had a huge response like again people like really really entrenched on either side because i think there's a sense of your decision about your life shouldn't affect me i don't want your dog in my space and i just find it interesting when that stuff starts really taking hold because i think it just shows that people are sort of less sympathetic to one another that there's this feeling that there's like not enough to go around and like and i think it shows something about our public spaces as well that people don't feel maybe that they have enough space you notice at the moment that things like people not picking up after their dogs seems to be, at least in my area, like massively on the rise. And again, I think that feeling where people don't feel like they have a role to play in public space or that it's not all of our public space is when that that sort of starts happening. So, yeah, I do think it's, it's, it's kind of happened at an interesting moment in terms of how we all view each other and how we view public space as well. Now we move on to culture. 
Firstly, a new art exhibition at the Tate Britain remembers the tragedy of the Grenfell Tower fire. Requiem by the artist Chris O'Filly spans three walls at the Tate and pays tribute to fellow artist Kadja Say, who died in the Grenfell Tower fire. The piece, which offers a, quote, poetic reflection on loss, spirituality and transformation, is on display now, for free, above Tate Britain's North Staircase. Secondly, Open City's Architecture in the Thames boat tour will be featuring a guest speaker from Peabody on Saturday the 7th of October. Departing from Greenwich, the tour will see Benedict Olini, Open City's Specialist Architecture in the Thames guide, share the microphone with Dr Phil Askew, Peabody's Director of Landscape and Placemaking, leading on Thamesmead. This unique Riverside tour offers a fresh perspective on London's emerging and established skyline and is led by the architect Benedict Odluni. Benedict's in-depth knowledge, founded on his work as a practitioner based in Peckham and a teacher at the Architectural Association, guarantees deep insight and thoughtful commentary. And tickets are available now on the Open City website. And finally, Open City has just released a new line of tote bags inspired by the distinctive bark of the London plane tree. To get yours, go to the Open City website and click on shop. And Barbara, do you have any recommendations? Yeah, I'm actually um, off work this week. Um, So I've been looking at some exhibitions to go to in London, but I'm thinking of going to the White Cube. have got a Christian Markley um, exhibition. I don't know if you remember, but he did the clock exhibition, which was a film of loads of clocks in loads of different films. And this is Doors, which I think will be really interesting in terms of kind of architecture and kind of what that what doors symbolise in the culture. Um, and I'm also planning to go to the British Museum, has a China exhibition called The Hidden Century about 19th century China and kind of a bit of Chinese history we, we don't see much about. So I think that will be really interesting. And there's also kind of like maps and um, objects and artefacts there, which I think will be really good. Great. Um, so it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show and thank you for your insight. Um, where can listeners go to keep up to speed with your work? So my main job is I edit uh, opinion on the Guardian website, which obviously you can see every day. Um, And I also occasionally write pieces for the Guardian as well, which go up on their website and sometimes in the paper as well. Thank you. Thanks. been listening to The Brief from Open City, made in association with the London Society and the 20th Century Society. This show is made possible in part thanks to Bloomberg Connects, a free digital guide to art and cultural organisations around the world. A link to download Bloomberg Connects is in the show notes. If you've enjoyed The Brief and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Brief and support Open City's wider work empowering young people from underrepresented communities, please become an Open City friend today. The link is in the show notes. The Brief is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Phineas Harper, Merlin Fulcher, Cyber Chadder and Fran Williams. The series editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable. Thank you.